everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. And this week, as I know, everyone was hanging on their edge of their seats as we left the show last week. We can officially confirm that our air conditioner has been fixed. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I know everybody was wondering what was going to happen with it and, you know, will it, won't it, you know. Some people, possibly in our own world, were very concerned as to how much this might cost us. Some people. <laughs> okay, me. <laughs> no, you weren't the only one. Um, but we ended up with compliments from our AC guy. Well, that was because we basically troubleshot it with his guidance over the phone. Yes, he told me that if that would have been almost anybody else, it would have taken three times as long. He said that we were smarts. You hear that? We, we have confirmation from an ACNR guy that we are smart people. Apparently, we know how to remove screws and read a a flashing light. That is what it is defined as being smart. But I'm going to take it for what it is. Confirmation. Well, now that we are a week out, we did get a chance to actually watch the British Grand Prix. We did. What were your thoughts overall on this as a race? I mean, we have seen some great moments in British Grand Prix in the past. Well, I was a little bummed there wasn't weather. Yeah, I think a lot of people, well, there was. But as we have seen the last, what, two races, after it ends, that's when the weather turns. Um, But I have to tell you that I thought for the most part that it was – a fairly dull race with a few really cool highlights. And I think we've had that more often than not this year of races that for the most part, other than a few moments, either right at the beginning or right at the end, they t- they've kind of settled down into a pattern, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> Well, I think that some of it has to do with, you've got to say, Lewis owned that race from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was not trading off at the front of the pack at all. Yeah. The, there has also been a lot of talk, and, and I don't know if we're quite there yet, but there was a lot of talk coming out of this weekend of how handily Lewis handled the Ferraris. And how well, to some extent, Valtteri did that maybe now Mercedes has the advantage and things have swung Mercedes way. And this is the the <laughs> where, you know, we start to see, as we have seen in the past, Ferraris start to stumble development wise. OK, I'm not sure we're there yet. Here's the thing. And. Anyone that might be new to Formula One, I'm going to be a massive spoiler to all punditry of Formula One. It There are 21 races in a season, and literally for the first 11, no matter what happens, that's the game-changing event. So Mercedes doesn't win the first race of the season. Well, then Mercedes' season is over. It's it's all over. They're going to have a battle on their hands. Well, maybe they'll have a battle on their hands. Maybe they won't. Then they come back and they win the next race. Well, Mercedes is back. It's not going to be a problem. They're going to own the, the trucks. It goes back and forth like you could have whiplash the whole way through. Well, you know, if you'll recall, after Baku, 
a lot of pundits were writing off Lewis Mm -hmm. and his chances. And now, after this week, not only is it that Lewis Hamilton is back in it, but there's also the talk of, you know, Valtteri Bottas, uh, he's working out to be a contender for the championship this year. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't think the maths work for that quite so well. But it's 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 amazing to me how fickle, and that's the way I've always seen the mm-hmm. punditry around Formula One is that they are so fickle. It is whatever happened in the last five minutes, and you know one guy get a really good pass on somebody else. Well, there goes the race. Well, that's not exactly sort of true. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen multiple times. Now there were some really interesting things that happened at Silverstone, as one can imagine. First lap incident between teammates. Yeah, and things are pretty much uh, about as close to exploding, I think, over at Toro Rosso as possible. Yeah, that world is a little tense. Um, so Carlos Sainz and Daniel Kvyat uh, came together, um, probably because they have magnetically uh, connected cars, um, came together in lap one. And both of them are saying that the other one is to blame. Well, you know, this is one of those situations where I think both of them are now at a point where they are they feel that they are fighting for their life in Formula One. Mm-hmm. As much as, and, and we'll talk a little more about it further on, as much as uh, Red Bull, the Red Bull organization has said that they are retaining Carlos for 2018 and they want him to stay around... Carlos feels that he has something to prove. Well, I think he does. He does feel like he's got something to prove. I think that he needs, he feels that he needs to stay ahead of what is roughly becoming called, uh, you know, the newest wild card on the grid. What were they calling him? The torpedo, Daniel? Yeah, Daniel Kvyat has apparently been nicknamed by the drivers the torpedo. I don't think that's a good nickname. Yeah. I don't think it's positive. It's not saying you're a really great guy. We like you. Um, But a lot of people, and I know we have a whole Silly Season section of our show today, um, are talking about where people can go and all of those types of things. Coming together in lap one, not a career-enhancing maneuver. Just, it isn't. No. Now, we should talk a little bit about Valtteri's race. Yeah, for starters, and we're going to talk a little deeper about what happened and why but he ended up with just like lewis did in baku a five space a five place grid penalty going into the race due to a gearbox change correct and like i said we'll talk a little more about the gearbox in a bit um but unlike lewis who kind of languished down in that fifth position as a result of his gearbox and, and lewis had started in eighth because he had a crummy qualifying to begin with um Valtteri managed to rocket up the grid pretty quickly. And truthfully, he did. Um, he is proving to himself to be an excellent passer. Yeah, well, once again, Valtteri has done exactly what he needed to do. Exactly. You know, he needed to be there and be ready to pick up the pieces and get that car as far forward as possible without necessarily challenging Lewis. Right. And he did that handle it. He did. He's 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 proving to be a very good teammate to Lewis. 
Now, um, as far as the next section of the race, we had, you know, the start. We had some crashing. Um, but the next section of the race, not a whole lot. Until, oh, about the closing stages of the race. What, about three laps left? About three laps left. And, um, you know, there was some concern, not a lot, but there was some concern regarding um, you could see some wear on the tires for some of the teams. Lewis had mentioned he saw some blistering. Um, you could clearly see it on the Ferraris at one point, but it, everything looked fine, and then Kimi Raikkonen's tire went. Right. Kimi, who was looking like he was going to be cruising into a second-place finish, because he wasn't going to catch Lewis. But he was he was doing a pretty good job of holding off Valtteri. He was doing a good job of holding off Valtteri. Actually, I'm sorry. He was um, he was holding off Seb. Seb was holding off Valtteri. Correct, because for the longest time in that race, the order went Hamilton, Raikkonen, Vettel, mm-hmm. B- Botas. And there was a lot of question, at least. On the Channel 4 broadcast, I don't know if it was on the NBC Sports broadcast, of whether or not, for championship's sake, team orders would be issued to um, tell Kimmy to have Seb pass, or to allow Seb to pass to preserve Seb's championship lead. Right. But even if Seb had come in third, as it was lining up to be... He would have still had a lead. He, he would have still had a lead. I mean, but it wouldn't have been quite as big. I mean, better for, for Seb to come in second and third in that case. And since Kimi really doesn't have a chance of contending for the championship, why not turn around and at least protect Seb's lead as much as possible? Yeah. So that was the question. Well, so three laps from the end, they... Raikkonen is able to make it back to the pits for a very quick tire change and pop back out. But of course, this is a fairly decently long track and is able to pop back out. Well, before you even get to, I mean, he had to go in because there was a tire failure. Right. What it was, according to Pirelli, was um, the, the tire tread gave away. The tire didn't actually lose any air, but the tire tread gave away, which caused... Um, a significant amount of damage to the car. Um, and although it happened early on in the lap, like you mentioned, he managed to get the car back into the pits, um, and Ferrari turned it around, and he only lost one position as a result of this. Which I thought was pretty impressive. Now, yeah, they were fairly spread out at this point. It wasn't like, it's not a short track, so there's not a lot of bunching by this point. There was like 20-something seconds between him and... Um, Lewis, you know, there was no chance that he was going to start falling back behind um, the fourth or the fifth place drivers. Then we go a lap later, and Seb's tire goes. But Seb's tire doesn't lose tread. It spectacularly just starts to fall apart. Well, and and I want to caution you on your language. And and there's a reason I'm going to caution you on your language because I think that plays into my, some other things that we expected to happen here that did not happen. First off, one of the things that was interesting was both Ferrari drivers had the left front tire go. Right. But the difference was 
Seb's tire completely let go. He lost pressure on it. Um, the entire structure of the tire failed. Um, Pirelli has come out and said after analyzing it that the failure was due to a slow leak. And when it went there, the tire actually had no pressure at all in it, which is why the tire completely went, completely failed the way it did. Um, Seb also managed to limp back to the pits. Pirelli has said, though, in trying to do a forensic analysis, that the tire was so badly damaged from that run back into the pits that they do not know if they will ever be able to determine the exact cause. Ooh. Now, the reason why I caution you to not say that the tire failed spectacularly is because you remember the last time we had tire failure issues, mm -hmm. actually the last two times, um, once in Spa in 2014, 20, uh, or 2015, 2014 in Silverstone with tires disintegrating at speed and bits flying, and this did not happen. No, I didn't mean it to sound like that's what we had. We just had... A tire. It looked like the tire shredded, and he wound up running back to the pits on what was left. Now, what we expected, especially given what has happened in the last two or three races with Seb, is that um, we ex expected some version of the Vettel smash. As yeah, a angry, result of this. angry Seb. Yeah, you know I. And, and this is why I bring up Spot 2015, because this was the last time that Seb was involved um, in a tire failure incident. Um, in that case, the tire did fail spectacularly. And this is him talking to, to Lee McKenzie, where it looked like he had a chance for um, challenging Nico Rosberg for the win. Sebastian, were Ferrari being a little bit too greedy in the end, do you think? No. So you were happy with the decision and you wanted to stay out you could have got to the end you felt well how many laps i was missing not many and things like that are not allowed to happen full stop if it happens 200 meter earlier i'm not standing here now i'm with 300 stuck in a rush so i don't know what else needs to happen uh, yeah so in that case, so you're obviously upset that the, the tire went in that way, but you'd run it for 27. What is upsetting? Upsetting is that one thing is the result. You know, this is racing for sure. You know, we, we deserve to finish on the podium. But the other thing, as I said, if this happens earlier, then, you know, I don't. I think it's a sort of theme that keeps going around. Nobody's mentioning it, but it's unacceptable. You were one of the drivers who stated your concerns to Charlie Whiting on Friday in the driver's briefing. Was that taken seriously? Well, I think it was, but what's the answer? Same as uh, every time. Yeah, well, there was a cut, debris, uh, the, 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 maybe something wrong with the bodywork, the driver went wide. If Nico tells us that he didn't go off the track, he didn't go off the track. I mean, why should he lie to us? It's, uh, same with me, I didn't go off the track. It's just out of the blue, the tyre explodes. And as I, says, as I said, if this happens earlier, then... We should put a giant asterisk. Post-race analysis proved that he went off the track. Well, it wasn't even post-race analysis. If you watch the race... He went off the track. He went so far off the track, it was a joke. But, but yes, that, that's angry Seb. And he was upset by the tires disintegrating and exploding. And we didn't get that post-race. We, we didn't. And, and to some extent... Um, again, going back to the Channel 4 coverage, um, Eddie Jordan, and, and how Eddie Jordan does stuff like this, I don't know. Hmm. Um, 
Seb was holding a post-race press conference with um, various media outlets that I guess Eddie was not invited to. And he just walked into the middle of it and crashed it and was up on stage and interviewed Seb in the middle of his press conference. Yes. Um, but Eddie pushed him on that. And, and I think to some extent Eddie was trying to goad Seb into lashing out because we've seen him do it so many times before to Pirelli and just from what we've seen the last couple of weeks. And Seb was very calm and very real. I mean, Eddie looked at him at one point, you know, is was this a disaster of a result and, and questions like that. And Seb's like, no, it's not a disaster. Um, it's very disappointing. We need to figure out what happened. But no, I don't. I don't view this as critical. I don't think this is that big a deal. You know, we salvaged as best we could. They turned the car around as quickly as they could. I finished the race. And yeah, it, it was a very different attitude from Seb than we have seen in the past. The best that I can figure, and this is my assumption, and again, it goes back to um, how the failures have occurred in the past, is that this was not the spectacular tire failing explosion bits and pieces flying everywhere you know a hub of the wheel exposed any of that stuff the tire while it did collapse and it did fail for the most part it remained intact the entire way around the track it was just flapping everywhere well okay but also this has not been a series of tire failures throughout the season which is one of the reasons why we got angry seb in 2015 well, was it, he that was, was that weekend. I think, well, we was... had a couple of those. The high deg tires weren't, yeah, they weren't holding together. I mean, that was they were I angry over the tires. So I think this was just the, the, the cherry on the top of the angry tire upset. Keep in mind, there were also multiple cars that had had the exact same failure. That were happening. So while, yes, he was angry on his own behalf, he was also angry on the fact that there were tires that were failing. Everybody had been, everybody had experienced some kind of tire failure because of the way the tires were made. The biggest thing about that one being in spa, they were told during practice, stay on the track. Yeah. They didn't stay on the track. And that was part of it. I mean, that was also curb gate too. So don't forget that. Yeah, there was that too. But okay. Here's the thing. We're going to go back to the race recap that we're going through. Seb was running, by this point, because of Raikkonen and dropping down, he was running in second place. His tire goes boom. He goes back into the pits, and he drops down to seventh. Mm -hmm. He is suddenly 94 seconds behind Lewis Hamilton. And the difference in points is 19. Points, yeah, from where he started. So while he had a decent lead on Lewis, he is now only one point ahead of Lewis in the championship, and there's still one more race to the break. And preview: Lewis and the Hungaro ring, they're buds. Well, see, I was going to caution you on that. He's won it like five times. He has, and he's he's won Silverstone five times. But something, a couple of things to remember about Hungaro Ring. One, last year was an absolute disaster for the team. Mm -hmm. 
it, it, it was not a good race for Mercedes at all. It wasn't a good race for Lewis. This is a tight, twisty track to which the Mercedes has a longer wheelbase than the other teams. And the last race that, that, that there, there's been one other race so far this year that was also a tight, twisty track that Lewis loves, although he hasn't been very particularly successful at. But he did really bad this year, and that was Monaco. And Mercedes in general didn't do great in Monaco. So I I think there's some some comparisons here that I would caution you to turn around and say, walking into this, Lewis is going to rock it. Well, wait. I thought that the Mercedes wheelbase was the same length or very, very close to the same length as Ferrari's. I know that Red Bull's the one that's got the shorter wheelbase, which makes the tight corners better for them. I'm reasonably certain that the Mercedes is a longer car than anybody else on the track. Well, we'll have to do some independent research. I'm not promising, you know, fact-checking during the show as we have done in the past. (laughs) And you have come up wrong. But still, you know, I caution you in that, again, Monaco, tight, twisty track. Mercedes has struggled. Mm -hmm. Last year... Singapore, tight, twisty track, Mercedes struggled. Mercedes and Singapore don't get along. Mm-hmm. Well, in the last couple of years, they haven't gotten along. Um, it was worse last year than I think any other time. But Mercedes has had some issues in tight, twisty tracks, and that's what Hungary is. So that's that's why I caution you to say, Lewis is going to do... Now, if this was Montreal, it would be a different story. I get it. I understand. But I'm still saying he's coming off of a high. He's coming into this only one point down. We're going to have a battle. And, you know, I can be as guilty as the punditry of Mm -hmm. F1 like everybody else. But the pendulum has swung Lewis's way. Well, while we're talking about Mercedes. Okay, so... Baku, Lewis gets a five-place grid penalty for a gearbox change. And in uh, Silverstone, Valtteri gets a five-place grid penalty for a, grid box, or for a gearbox change. Well, we've got an explanation of what happened. What happened? Um, first off, hearing from James Allison, Mercedes' new technical director. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Ferrari? No. <laughs> Um, he said that it's the team's bid to extract every element of performance out of the car resulted in them pushing too hard to shave milliseconds off of the shift times. What he said was, in the old days, you'd be in a gear, then you'd be out of a gear, then you'd be in another gear, and you'd just lose drive all the time that the gears were in transit from one to another. But they're using what they call a seamless shift system. So in a seamless shift, you are in one gear, and then the next one takes over instantly, so there isn't a loss of drive. But seamless though it is, there is still an amount of spinning stuff that needs to be slowed down to meet the next gear. The harsh way to do that is just letting rip. I can say this because it's not a sort of thing that no one else has thought of. It's a standard thing in F1. It's just a question with how bold you are with it. One of the things that they realized, and yes, you can test this on the dyno, and you can do all of that load testing and everything, but and it's great in a dyno where you don't have oh 
gravity pulling in any direction other than, say, down. Mm -hmm. But when you're on a track and you've got gear shifts happening around curves and under braking and all of these other things or, or all of these other points, it's adding stresses in areas they can't simulate on the dyno. Okay. Especially when you're talking spinning gears. That's the issue. They couldn't simulate that stuff. So they didn't know what was going to happen until they actually got the car out there. Total Wolf also said that um, another area that they looked at, which has actually helped them a lot, is on the fuel and lubricants from Patronus. Really? What, what Toto said is, for me, it's amazing that there are fluids you can extract performance from that I didn't even know were in the car. <laughs> he said, and it adds up. You can find five milliseconds on a cooling product. You can find 15 milliseconds on a hydraulic oil. With the formula of oils and fuels and a density, you can extract so much more performance out of all these crucial parts of the internal combustion engine. Their gearbox is another good example. Running the right oil in the gearbox can give you a performance advantage. It can give you a weight advantage. It can allow you to race more aggressively in terms of gear shifts. And sometimes, as a team, you get overconfident. That has happened to us on the gearbox. We've probably run it too hard, and when we stuck the nose in after Baku, we realized. Ah. Well, I know that the same exact thing that happened to Lewis, it was the same reason they had to pull Valtteri's um gearbox mm -hmm. it was timing as to which one went first um but they both needed to do it so they both got that five grid penalty um but that's all done now so they can come in strong for hungary but while we're also talking about reasons why teams are struggling <sighs> it is now part of that recurring section of our show let's bash honda <laughs> I don't have music for it yet. We should get music for the Let's Bash Honda. Mm -hmm. Maybe some some kind of carnival music like they used to use on uh, on Car Talk for uh, Stump the Chumps. That's also possible. <laughs> I wonder if we could get permission to use a little piece of the Capitol Steps. Help me, Honda. Ooh, no. Actually, that wouldn't work. That's the other way around. I know it's the other way it around. It wasn't Honda asking for help. That was other folks asking for right, help. Right, but we that could use work, a little bitty snip of it. But anyway... Um, so Honda. Yeah. Honda actually, it's, it's a really good article that Honda put up on the F1 teams, the, the, the engine teams website. Cause Honda has a website just for the engine development team and crowdsourcing. No, they're not crowdsourcing ideas of how to make an engine work. No, maybe they should. Yeah, maybe they should. That might be the, 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 the answer there. But Yasuki Hasegawa was talking about how things developed this year and why they've been struggling. So what one of the things that he reminded everyone is that this year, as opposed to what they've done previously, they introduced a new power unit concept. You know, last year it was that uh, that what they called the size zero concept, where mm -hmm. everything was packed in as tight as possible, and that was an issue, and they moved past that now. So they, they introduced a new power con unit concept this year. Um, so uh, Hasegawa-san actually says that he would almost call this year one again. I mean, they, they basically started from scratch. He said their aim is to develop the 2017 concept into the 2018 season and hopefully 2019 as well. So the engine weight, center of gravity, and the combustion concept is all going in the same direction as the other three engine manufacturers. 
So in terms of addressing the problems that they have had, he says, for most fans, the biggest question becomes, why were these issues not seen before? And he says that the answer lies in the difference between testing on the dyno and running in a brand new car on a track. He says, many items we could not test on a dyno, so it is normal that we need to check some functions in the car. The oil tank is one of the biggest items. Now, as you'll recall, Honda has had some issues all the way up through Barcelona mm -hmm. with the oil tank. He said, the oil tank is one of the biggest items, so we have a big so we have a rig for the oil tank, but we cannot recreate the same types of G-forces and conditions as in the car. Of course, by design, we have to consider the actual car situation in theory, but sometimes it is not always the same situation, so that is why we had some issues with the oil tank first. The second issue was down to the vibrations. On the dyno, the model is stiffer and heavier, so it doesn't create any synchronized vibrations. But on the car with the gearbox and the tires, there is a much lower level of inertia. Low inertia does not always create vibrations, but it's completely different from the dyno, and that's why we suffered a huge vibration on the car. Of course, we were aware of some level of vibration would come in the car, but it was much bigger than we expected. Wow. Okay. So, not good vibrations. Definitely not good vibrations. I, I figure we're going to go with this kind of song theme here <laughs> going on. Uh, you and I had a, a brief pre-show meeting about this story, and I'm going to express my question again so mm -hmm. that you can then tell me I'm wrong again. Okay. <laughs> but I do not understand why the very, very smart boffins that build these engines can't figure out how to somehow substitute some of the testing to get a little bit closer. I get gravity being gravity and G-forces being G-forces. Actual testing on a car is key. But you would think that you could do some mathematical simulations to go, okay, it's moving like this under normal gravity. We add 3G to the side. What are the stresses and what are going to happen to the car at that point. I mean, don't you think but, that there but, should be some sort of maths but, but, involved? But think about what you're you're suggesting that they do to add three. How do you add three G of force to to anything? Mathematically, but if giant but, chalkboard three G. But but, but but if you don't know what that force is going to feel like. You've got to actually physically apply that force somehow. It's the same thing. I mean, that's why they do dyno testing is because, yeah, you can do all the math you want, you want, but until you put it into practice, you don't know if the calculations work. So that's why you do the dyno testing in the first place because you can't just turn around and go pull out a pad or, or you know, an envelope and a big pen and go, <laughs> okay, move this here, move that there, carry the one, and we're good. No, I get that – not understanding. I get that there is a need for real-world testing. Do mm -hmm. not misunderstand. I don't believe that you can design an F1 car completely on the back of an envelope and expect that it be flawless, unless mm -hmm. you're Adrian Newey. Um, <laughs> but even he, I think, has a slide rule. I think even he does some math. But my question becomes, can you not narrow the differential between what you're seeing with a little bit of smarts and some computing math, possibly some simulation work, 
what would it take to narrow that? I, I I'm having. Well, I think that's. I think that's what. I mean, I mean that that's the point of the dyno. I mean, the dyno is to make sure that things are meshing properly and mounted, and you know the clearances are what they need to be. But what you can't tell is under three G's of pressure with the weight of the engine, the the centrifugal force that's being generated within the engine, and all of the other things that are interacting, whether or not those um, tolerance those tolerances stay when you add even more force. And are your mounts going to work properly, and are things going to flex in ways that, wow, we didn't really design it to do that, but it's doing that anyway. And and that that's, I think, where the issue is, is, okay, the math says that you should behave this way. So we have designed you based on what the maths are telling us to do, but when we actually put it into practice, we're realizing that, yeah, there's a variable that we didn't know about. And I would buy that and be okay with that if that variable was pretty minor. And here's my problem. Honda seems to get it very wrong. So are their maths wrong when they're saying, okay, we know what it's going to do on the dyno, and then we have to extrapolate out what we think it's going to do with some G-force, and we think we're close, but then they get it on a car and put it in real-world conditions, and the word it is wrong comes up pretty heavily. Well, so my question is, I go back to you. And maybe I don't understand, and it's perfectly possible. I'm in marketing, not in engineering. I don't understand how we cannot take some levels of simulation and not extrapolate some other pieces of information. Well, let, let's look at it from another industry. Okay. Okay. Let's look at it from um, aeronautics, and even better, let's look at NASA where arguably there are some of the smartest folks around working there. They do Maybe have a good the, corral of yeah, boffins. Th- th- there, there's a lot of really smart folks there, and maybe nuclear scientists are the, the only ones who come closer in terms well, of you know, really, after all, really super smart folks. But, it is rocket science. But anyway, okay, so NASA goes and they design a satellite or a rocket or – they want to test a process or a piece of machinery that's going to go up into space. Mm-hmm. But yes, they do their design work and they do their calculations. And depending on what they're doing, they may take it up into, I'm sure you've heard of the plane called the Vomit Comet. Yes. Where they can simulate the zero-G conditions. Because at some point, you have to check the maths. Right. And that's what this is of, okay, you have turned around and and you have designed this. You have tested it as best you can to check the maths. But, okay, so the manufacturer rates this particular material that it should be able to withstand this level of force under for, for this amount of time and last this long before a failure. But the manufacturer says that's how it's supposed to be. You don't know if the manufacturer is right until you actually use it. And NASA turns around and, and, I mean, that's part of their iterative design process. They build it out. They see if it works. They test it, see if it works, go back, 
refine it. Fi- I mean, it, it's not the, okay, we have built this out. We have done all the math and all the calculations. We have assembled it. We spun the gears once. It looks great. Let's go throw it into production. But that's the way I feel like Honda's working. But they just said they're not, though. They're testing it as far as they can, but at some point you have to go into production and you have to validate because there's forces they can't simulate that are involved. I mean, in order to do this, they'd have to take the car, and I guess the best way to turn around and test these kind of forces if you're not going to run it onto a track, remember we don't have in-season testing, which is something that they used to be able to, to do this work with, is probably drop it on a centrifuge. Mm-hmm. Not just drop it on a centrifuge, but drop it on a centrifuge that can generate those kind of pressures and that much gravity and then rap- rapidly change directions. And then do it again without blowing itself up. Think about that. Okay, so that might be a little difficult. But I still hold. If Mercedes is saying they struggle with it. I just don't (laughs) think that Honda's bringing the brightest minds to the plate. If they can get an engine that works in IndyCar, how hard is it? That, I think, is more telling of the issue. I don't think it's a matter of um, that they're not doing the maths right. I think there are some fundamental flaws in their designs that seem to work okay on the dyno and in their various static tests that they can do that I don't think they're learning from what's happening over an IndyCar. And I get that the engines are different and it's a different concept to those engines. But I would think that there are some lessons that they could take from IndyCar and building an engine for IndyCar that they are not learning over on the F1 side. And I agree with you there. I I, I don't think that there is the cross-pollination that there needs to be between those organizations. And I think that you said something else that I think is one of their absolute fatal flaws. I think that there is something, some assumption that got made in the early steps of design that they are not questioning as they are trying to do their iterative design. Oh, I think there's a lot of assumptions. But one of them, and again, it it goes back to, and I'm not going to pull out the Eddie Jordan clip this week, but it goes back to what Eddie keeps saying, uh, or or Eddie had said that we just keep replaying. (laughs) They have misjudged the competitiveness of Formula One. And that over on the IndyCar side, because it's just them and Chevy, and because it is very much a spec series... There is not the iterative design and engineering and improvement. And, and I could be wrong, but there is not the same pace and level of uh, pressure to improve throughout the season what the engine is doing right. that there is in Formula One. And because of that, Honda is not as and, – and a lot of folks have said it. They're not as flexible. They're not as adaptive. They're not as, dare I say, agile as they need to be. You did not just use the A word. I did. But they're not, they're not able to adapt like they need to. They are approaching this like a Japanese company and not like what they need to be. Mm-hmm. 
I completely agree. Are we done bashing Honda? Well, how about a little McLaren? <laughs> okay, we'll bash McLaren now. Um, you know, the, one of the questions that has been going on is what's going to be the fate of this contract? With Honda. Yeah. Well, Mercedes and Ferrari have come out, and they have said that uh, if McLaren needs a new engine, they're not getting it from either of them. Now, this kind of surprises me because I thought the rules had been changed after the whole Red Bull thing that said that you can't deny somebody an engine. But doesn't Renault supply fewer engines? Because it's based on how many engines Re you are. Renault does supply fewer engines, but Renault has also come out and said that they have concerns about, unlike Mercedes and Ferrari, who have turned around and said that they don't want to do it because they think McLaren is just too competitive as a team. Renault has come out and said, um, we're having a lot of reliability issues with what we're doing right now. And we have a lot of concerns that if we bring another team on, as much as we're struggling with reliability now and getting parts and everything now, we don't think we can support a fourth team from all of those various bits. Well, so yes, they had changed the rules, but the rules read that if you were, if a team wound up without an engine supplier, Mm -hmm. They would have to get supplied by the manufacturer that supplied the fewest number of engines on the grid. That's the way the rule reads. Mm -hmm. So Renault, Renault can say, we're having trouble all we want. That's the engine they'd wind up with. Because Mercedes and, and Ferrari both can go, four teams, we're done. Yeah. Yeah, we already supply between the two of them over half the grid. Um you got to do this. I mean, that was the way we were predicting at one point that possibly Red Bull would wind up with the Honda. Because keep in mind that that was a possibility. But if Honda says, you know, that's it, we're out of here, now what? Yeah. Which, by the way, speaking of that, going back over to IndyCar, Chevy seems to believe that um, they might have a chance of luring Andretti Autosport away from Honda and over to Chevy. Really? So now think about that one. Because McLaren partnered with Andretti to get Fernando into Indy 500, and that car was run as an Andretti-McLaren-Honda. Mm -hmm. And part of what helped facilitate that was McLaren's partnership with Honda. So if Andretti leaves Honda and goes to Chevy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that could be interesting because I still predict that Fernando is going to leave Formula One to go to Indy. I think there's a potential, but then where would he go? Well, if Andretti becomes a Chevy team, I don't know. Um, I mean, it seems likely that he would go to one of the Honda teams but, because but, of the deals. But also keep in mind, though, if 
Fernando leaves Formula One. He's leaving without a con. He's leaving because he doesn't have a contract. Mm-hmm. So he could conceivably go to any team he wanted to in Formula Truth. So there is that. Truth. I, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of iterations to that. The one thing I can tell you is I did read an article that Stoffel, our flying waffle, um, had wrote about his troubles with the McLaren Honda. Mm-hmm. And one of the big lines in that was that he did not feel that he would be t- participating in silly season this year. That he has a long-standing contract and that he feels that he will not be in the silly season. Well, also on an engine front, before we get too far down silly season, okay. word has come out that Cosworth is laying the foundation to return to Formula One in 2021. It has been big news. It's huge news. Wait, it was big news with our uh, part-time corresponding reporter who was most excited to hear that Cosworth could be returning. Of course, he's most excited to hear that Cosworth could be returning because he likes to root for underdogs, and the first year he watched Formula One, Cosworth was powering the two backmarker teams and had no chance of doing anything. Right. But the they didn't rea- even have DRS. Remember that? Yeah, they couldn't afford it. I know. Um, actually, it wasn't DRS. It was ERS. They didn't have. They had the DRS. It was it was the energy recovery system that they did not have. Okay. Because that's the expensive part. The DRS is just the flap. It's just a flap. I, I wasn't sure that they could connect to the flap. They were no, having really big big money issues. But, but yes, he does like to root for the underdog. Cosworth has a very long and storied history, and it was the Ford Cosworth cars that did so well when Ford was running in the series. So to hear that Cosworth is coming back, or might be coming back, has a lot of folks kind of excited. Now, from Cosworth CEO Hal Reisger, he said optimism over future roles plus positive talks with teams had convinced him to start committing resources to an F1 project. Uh, and this is him speaking to Autosport. He said, I think that we've got sufficient support from the existing teams and we've had discussions with some that enable us to make the commitment to proceed. More, com- more teams committed for a longer term is always better. But we have some verbal agreements to partner with some existing and future teams that would enable us to be a sustainable engine partner. Now, some of the things that have helped fuel this and and move this along is Cosworth has agreed to play a significant role in new F1 working groups being set up to finalize the rules for 2021. Now, what Cosworth wants, and this is a big deal, is Cosworth wants to move away from the energy recovery element that has proved so troublesome for current manufacturers. And as you recall, when we changed to these V6 turbo hybrid engines, Cosworth walked away completely. Their argument was these engines are too expensive and it's not worth us getting involved. Right. So they want to move away from these engines. So he says, we think we are well suited to come back into F1 if the energy regu- if the engine regulation should change. And the most compelling change has to do with the heat energy recovery from the turbo because that is the most expensive and time-consuming element. If F1 wants a new engine supplier for 2021, there will have to be some engines there will have to be some changes on that front. 
Now, he says that no decisions need to be made until next year, but if a 2021 comeback was going to happen, then it would need to start designing the engine in 12 months' time. We would typically start in 2018. I know there is some discussion about moving it ahead by a year, and that would mean working really soon. On the LMP1 engine, we went from concept to dyno in 11 months. We happen to be very nimble when it comes to that type of capability. I don't know there are many companies that can move that fast, but we have that. Maybe they could teach Honda how to do that. You know, there's been a lot of things that have been rolled around about that. So I'm not the only one that thinks that they're going, hey, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if that's the if that's the move? Honda hangs on until Cosworth is up and running, and that's what, what McLaren winds up picking? Yeah. That could be interesting. However... Again, looking at what they're saying, they're talking LMP1. They went from 11 months from drawing to dyno. Not in the car, drawing to dyno. Mm-hmm. So it could be, even if they were willing to move ahead right now, it would be two years. Oh, yeah. But that still puts, you've still got the roadblock of it's a concept that, uh, Cosworth doesn't want. They don't want to develop. They don't want to work on. So they will not come before 2021, no matter what happens with Honda. Right. Is it that time yet? Head protection? Oh. The halo? No. I don't want to talk about head protection. Mostly because I think they're being stupid. Well, IndyCar, I told you, we're jumping around this week. IndyCar has actually said that they're going to take a look at screens and what they're going to do and improved head protection. Um, Now, this came out, actually, this article was from just before um, Ferrari ran the Shield. Mm -hmm. And according to IndyCar's president of competition and operations, Jay Fry, He says, if we do go the route of using a screen like uh, Formula One Shield, we're probably looking to have it slightly more vertical and less raked back. Right now, I'd say it was one of two applications we want to try, possibly in one of four sign-off tests um, that they're playing with across uh, the rest of this month and into September. Um, He says that the halo would not work at a place like Texas because of the sight lines on banked ovals. We've had to look carefully at the distortion issues with screens, particularly the amount of adjustment a driver would have to do if he looks over it then switches back to looking through it. You don't want a depth perception difference at 220 miles per hour or when you're braking hard and trying to judge the closing distance on the car in front. Um, They've consulted about a different... um, different materials uh they've talked to some the the canopy manufacturers for the f-16 as some possible proposals on what to do with it um some feedback from the drivers uh penske's willpower says absolutely looks like the right idea for us he says that if the testing shows it works from the vision point of view there's absolutely no reason not to run it on the cars it's an absolute must do if we can get it the right height for a driver to be looking through it and not over it, then I think we've got to go with it. Um, James Hinchcliffe backed it on both aesthetic and safety grounds. He says, I think it's the future. I truly do. It's functional, it's sleek, and it's safer. Right from the get-go, when we are shown the renderings of something similar on an IndyCar, we all liked it. 
It would have saved me from that concussion on the Indy Road Course in 2014 when I got a wing endplate right in the forehead. And uh, Max Chilton called the Shield definitely the best solution I've seen for an open car and was willing to accept visibility compromises for it. He says, if someone tells you it affects vision by 5%, but improves safety by a lot more, then it's the way forward, isn't it? Wow. So then we talk about Formula One, which had some meetings this past week. Okay. The uh, shield was discussed, and in light of the poor response that the shield got from Sebastian Vettel, uh, on the one lap that it was on the car <laughs> before it was taken off because it made him dizzy. And the decision that came out is that the halo is coming in 2018. Ugh. But why the halo? Well... The FIA says that the Halo presents the best overall safety performance after the evaluation of a large number of devices over the past five years. That's what what they say. So is a large number three? Um, yeah, I think pretty much that's three. But the reality is the only one that has gone through extensive testing, and I think the only one that survived having a tire fired at it at 200 miles an hour was the Halo. And those are the only options that they've looked at. So we're not getting the Halo because it's the best option out there. We're getting the Halo because it's the only option they've tested. Yeah, pretty much. I'm not a fan. There's a lot of folks who are not a fan. Um, the drivers are okay with it because, you know, it in- increases safety. Um, my understanding is nine out of ten teams have said they do not like this option. Mm-hmm. They do not want this option. Uh, they're going with it because they have to. Nikki Lauda has actually gone so far as to say that they are ruining Formula One. <laughs> Leave it to Nikki to cut to the chase and make it so simple to understand. He says that this goes against the spirit of Formula One. This is not what they should be doing. This is the wrong direction. This is bad. Well, and obviously the spirit of uh, Formula One will rise up and smack them all. Yeah, probably not. You're going to have to adjust to it. I don't have to do anything. It's coming and you're not going to be able to stop it. Doesn't mean I have to like it. I didn't say you had to like it. I said you had to adjust to it. Doesn't mean I'm going to do that either. You know, speaking of design Doesn't changes. Doesn't mean I don't get to bash it at every turn. Speaking of design changes, you, there were quite a few pictures because, you know, folks were showing off the halo and, and, and um, how it looked on the cars last year on the installation laps that were run. But in looking at the and, – and I didn't really realize it up until these pictures came out – Looking at the the pictures of last year's cars, the thing that keeps striking me every time I see them, wow, the tail is really high. (laughs) Compared to this year, they look huge now. And we didn't think that last year or, you know, any of the previous years. But now you see those cars and they look massive. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the back wing is a lot higher last year, wasn't it? Yeah. 
sometimes you don't always see, because you see the cars side by side, you don't necessarily see the iterations through the years um, as much side by side. You know, you'll see iconic cars from certain decades, but year over year, you don't always see the the major changes that they've made. Yeah. Now, um, just as a little heads up for the gaming people, there's apparently a Formula One game that will be coming out shortly that oh. will be picking up, I think it's 10 of the iconic year cars. Yeah, this is the, the annual Formula One video game release um, that comes out every year. Um, this is the first year in, in the last out of the last three that they've given uh, players the chance to drive uh, some older cars. Mm -hmm. uh, the last couple of years, and they don't do it every year, but the last couple of years it has just been the current year's cars on current year's tracks. And I think it was about three years ago they brought in some historic cars and some historic tracks were available. I don't know if there are going to be additional tracks available outside of the, the current year's tracks, but there are going to be, I think it's a dozen historic cars i read 10 so okay we're close. i was close i was working off the top of my head there so uh but there was a lot of uh a lot of discussion over the fact that the historic mclaren mp44 was going to be run as well as the uh i want to say it's the williams fw35 the mansell car yes the mansell car yeah the one that had the active suspension yes yeah, that, that one is definitely in it because that was the picture of the article. So just wanted to point that out for our gaming friends that want to, to have their opportunity to drive a Formula One car. So you know what what point of the show it is? It's time to talk silly season finally. Absolutely. <laughs> Silly season is slowly building up, truthfully. So let, let's start with Mercedes. And unfortunately, I didn't grab the article and, and have it here. But l let's start with Mercedes because, you know, w one of the lingering questions that we have had since the start of the year is Valtteri and his future. And, yeah, it's great that he's in Mercedes, but it's a one-year contract. And holy crap, there's a lot of pressure here. Right. So every time that we see that Valtteri does exactly what he needs to do, we call it out. We feel it's necessary. We've got to influence Toto. Well, I mean— And we know Toto listens. That was what I was going to say. I mean, in, in our correspondence with Toto, we know that he uh, is concerned with our analysis of uh, Valtteri's performance. Well, what we know as of this week, Toto Wolf has said that retaining Valtteri and signing him at this point is a no-brainer. What ha they don't know yet would be how long he will be signed for. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different things at play, but um, 2019 is one of those years that the driver market could get kind of crazy with contracts. So do you keep him for 2019? Do you keep him for 2018, knowing that there's also some contracts that come up there? Um, so that they need to figure that out. But he also admits that... They actually haven't started talking to Valtteri yet. Hmm. But, you know, that's got to be a good position for Valtteri to be in to walk in knowing that they, they want to keep him now. Yeah. So there's that. 
The other thing I should point out, do you remember, what was it, last week or the week before, um, <coughs> Christian Horner saying that uh, Carlos Sainz isn't going anywhere. He has yes. a contract. He's not going anywhere. He's driving for us. Th- I, this is happening. And I re- remember that you said, you know, do keep in mind that contracts are only as good as somebody's ability to buy them out. Well, Christian Horner heard us. <laughs> Naturally. He responded. Naturally. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave off the insults, and <laughs> we'll go right to the meat of it. Well, what he did not say was that we needed to lay off Monisha. No, he didn't say that. So, so you know. <laughs> Monisha Keltenborn, you still got a bullseye on you, mm-hmm. even though you're not running a team. Um, but what Christian said, he said, nothing has changed. Carlos Sainz has a contract with Red Bull Racing. There are two years left on that. We value him as an asset, and an asset has a value. So if there was a desire for another team to have him or for him to go anywhere else, something that has a value has to have a price attached to it. If somebody was prepared to make an offer, of course we would consider it. But it would have to have a significant value attached to it because we have invested in Carlos significantly. We have taken him from Formula BMW to F1, and you are not just going to give an asset away. Now, asked if there were any offers on the table for Carlos right now, uh, Christian says no. Mm. He has also gone on to say that, you know, that pretty much applies to all of their drivers. So when it comes to Max and Daniel Ricciardo, he says the two are totally locked in and there is no price that would be high enough for those two. Um, Now, for Ricciardo, his contract runs until the end of 2018. Verstappen has options to extend into 2019. And Christian says that there's no rush to try to extend either of those deals. 2019 is a long way away. Interesting. Interesting. And, and that would be why I call out Valtteri in 2019 in those contracts, because we know that um, given the opportunity, Total Wolf would love to get his hands on Max Verstappen. True. True. Now, we did have two drivers completely exit the silly season experience this week. Yeah, you know, pretty much what, what kicked off the discussions this week was uh, Gene Haas uh, confirming that both uh, Kevin Magnuson and Roman Grosjean will remain with the team. Um Gene Haas told the official Formula One website, we will run with the same drivers that we have this year again next year. That is a given. And given the other continuity aspects, we should expect we should be better racers next season. Um, They have been really happy with, obviously, with how Roman has done. Um, But Kevin also has, he's delivered for them in ways that Esteban Gutierrez did not deliver last year, you know. He's earned them points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what he points out is that at, at this point in the season, they've got 29 points. Uh, last year around this time, they also had 29 points, but one, all of them were scored by Roman Grosjean, and that hasn't been the case this year. Uh, but the other concern that they've got is that you know last year, they didn't score any more points the rest of the season. So they're hoping that they can continue to run up. And, and I don't see a reason why they would not be able to run up into the points at this point. 
Sure. I mean, depending on the brake system issues, but as long as the reliability is there, as long as the brakes are working, there should be no reason why they shouldn't be up in the points. You know, Sauber's just going to drop further and further back, and you know, as long as Honda keeps blowing up engines in Fernando's car. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's got to be pretty heady. You're a brand new team to Formula One, and you're consistently beating the legacy team of McLaren and the world champion, the two-time world champion of Fernando Alonso. Yeah, that's probably pretty heady. Yeah. Also uh, under discussion now is uh, Sergio Perez's seat. VJ Malia has confirmed that uh, they have commenced talks with him for the renewal of his contract. Um, what VJ says is, when I have to take a new driver, I like to leave it late. When I have a returning driver, I like to do it early. Checo is a highly talented and experienced driver. There is no question about that, and I am glad Esteban, and talking about Esteban uh, Ocon, is pushing him. Mm. But the real question is, you know, we Valtteri hasn't been signed yet. We don't know what's happening with Kimmy's seat yet. Oh, and by the way, we don't really know what's happening with Seb's seat either. Now, the assumption is that Ferrari would re-sign him. There's no reason why they wouldn't at this point. Right. Although, if we keep seeing angry Seb, who knows? But Kimmy, you know, they, they called him a bit of a laggard up until last week's race. So, there's that. And Esteban did come up through the Ferrari Young Driver Program. True. Um, Malia said, VJ said that he would not stand in the way of his drivers if a top team came calling, but if such an offer is not forthcoming, he sees little reason for them to want to leave. He says, I like to believe that my drivers are happy in this team. We give them a good car to race. If there's a Mercedes or a Ferrari seat, they'll obviously jump at the opportunity. I'm not going to stand in their way, but other than that, I think we have the best car. We give them an atmosphere where they are comfortable, they enjoy the team, their colleagues, and they enjoy working together. What's the reason to move? Well, you know, other than the fact that your uh, team principal has unique financial stylings and can't leave Great Britain, no, no reason at all. Well, okay, business dealings aside, Yeah. and, and we, we've hammered on that pretty hard, but business dealings aside, if you look at where Force India is, they're doing they're, good. They're a pretty solid mid-pack team. They they really are and have definitely grown in the last few years. Yeah. And they've gone from mid-mid-pack to upper mid-pack. I mean, they're solidly in fourth right now. So there's nothing to sneeze at there other than to just generally be snarky about the pink cars. Yeah. But e even that, you know, I still look at it and go, go you for getting a sponsor. Mm -hmm. and getting the number of sponsors that you have. And I'm going to stick with that line. The other thing that was discussed this week at the meetings is the 2018 testing schedule. Yes. Um, Preseason testing will continue uh, to be four days long at Barcelona. Okay. Um. There is some rumors that one team was pushing for a test at Paul Ricard, um, which we're going to see anyway because that's going to be hosting the, the French Grand Prix. Uh, however, it doesn't sound like there was enough support to move that along. Uh, there'll be set several days of dedicated tire testing for Pirelli to test further improvements in the tires. 
uh, and there will be two in-season tests. Hmm. Uh, the first one will be May 15th to 16th in Barcelona. The second will be July 31st to August 1st at the Hungaro Ring. Uh, so it's a Tuesday and Wednesday. The sporting regulations allow for the test, providing they take place at circuits where a Grand Prix has just taken place. There's also a stipulation still that each team must allocate two of the four days for young driver testing. So what we had this year was uh, uh, Bahrain had uh, the first in-season test. The second one is going to be at uh, Hungaro Ring this year. Uh, last year it was Silverstone and Barcelona. Okay. So since next weekend is the Honda Indy 200 at Mid-Ohio, yes. and we will not have a regularly scheduled show next weekend, um, we get a look at IndyCar. Right. We're, we're working on our flashcards to make sure you two can recognize an IndyCar driver. Um, one of the things that we will be looking for is probably Elio Castroneves, who rumor has it, and it's a fairly strong rumor, but rumor has it that uh, the the Penske team, who he drives for now, is actually pushing to move him out of the series next year uh, to take part alongside Juan Pablo Montoya in the new in their new Acura IMSA Sports Car Championship program. Interesting. Um, Elio's not really sure he wants to do this. I can't imagine. Uh, he may not get a choice. Um, so last weekend was the race in Toronto, and Elio's doing pretty good. He's within three points of, of uh, Scott Dixon, who's leading the, the IndyCar championship, mm -hmm. um, going into Toronto. Um, IndyCar actually asked the media not to question Elio over his future in the press conference following his win in Iowa. Really? <clears throat> so asked in Toronto if he was allowed to talk about 2018 yet, Elio first replied, sure, what do you want to know? You shouldn't ask me. There are people with more power than me actually to make things happen. So pushed further on a decision on, on whether to race in IndyCar IMSA next year, whether or not that was in his own hands, Elio said, a lot of decisions are. It's not in my hands or results. Sometimes it's common sense. <coughs> but at this point, I feel that I'm going to do everything I can. If we're in that position to make it harder for everyone, if there is a decision in the end to change it or not, to be continued. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. The other notable thing that I know that you are probably going to be really excited about uh, that came out of the, the race in Toronto last weekend is Alexander Rossi got his first podium since Indianapolis last year. Correct. Uh, came in in second place. He did. He, he's had quite a few top 10 finishes, um, but this was really the only other top five finish he's had since then. He's had no one, wins and no polls this year. Yeah. Um, however, he is the top point-scoring driver without a win or a poll. Just kind of pointing that out, the little – you know, trivia thing. He is eighth in the series uh, with 330 points. However, Scott Dixon has 423 points. So that's the span between first to eighth. And, you know, let, let's put the whole Scott Dixon thing into perspective because, yeah, Scott's won the championship a few times. But this year, especially around Indianapolis – 
there were some issues. <laughs> Although, based on what happened at Indianapolis, Scott Dixon's actually been compared to James Bond. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Th- think about okay what what has gone on. So you've got James Bond, and and what happens with James Bond a lot is that you know he ends up in this incident. Maybe there's a gunfight, some shooting, and whatever shakes it off without any problem maybe then he ends up in like a car chase or something like that there's a big crash or an incident and then a couple hours later there he is in his tuxedo at some fancy party or casino or something like that living it up and you know like nothing ever happened all right so scott dixon in indianapolis start of the weekend he goes out for dinner with i want to say it was james hinchcliffe they go to a drive-through taco at a Taco Bell and they get held up. Yes. At gunpoint. Yes. Next day he has qualifying, does pretty good. Get to the race. He has that massive wreck flying over people and stuff. That night, he appears at a gala formal dinner in a tux like nothing ever happened. <laughs> He's James Bond. <laughs> maybe that's the secret (laughs) maybe that's the secret but isn't will australian and not english or is he english will power is english actually scott dixon may be or or will power is australian um i'd have to double check scott dixon might be australian that's what i was thinking i'm sorry i did just say will power and totally meant scott dixon but you were right will power is australian (laughs) (laughs) you were correct my flashcards are working <laughs> um speaking of flashcards we need to be able to recognize this coming weekend graham rahal mm-hmm. as we fully expect him to be visiting our rv lot potentially um scott dixon actually um we have insulted scott dixon he is not australian He's American. He's a Kiwi. Oh, okay. I'm like, he's from down under. Please yeah, tell me he's from he, he's down under. He's a Kiwi. So, so we have now insulted Scott Dixon. I'm sorry, Scott. <laughs> Fortunately, he is not judging the decoration contest at Mid-Ohio. No. Um, however, speaking of down under and Australians, back to Formula One and Daniel Ricciardo. Okay, you know, all of these, uh, we needed head protection for this show. Well, all of these gear shifts and changes and G-forces, um, I'm getting whiplash. Well, Reuters spoke to Daniel Ricardo about the shoeing. Again? Oh, no, no, you, you got to hear this. They, okay. they spoke to him about the shoeing and, and asked him, you know, what's going on and what's happening and his thoughts about it. The first thing he wanted to talk about was um, this year, in particular at Azerbaijan and Austria, um, he wasn't planning on doing it. Right. They were instigated. Um, And what he had to say was, I honestly didn't plan on doing it. Even in Baku, I was like, ah, I won't do it. Um, And this was when he was speaking to reporters on Thursday. He said, DC took my shoes off. And then in Austria, Martin Brundle was frothing for it. I feel there's some real sick bastards around here. I never thought it would continue like this. <laughs> he said fans were even shouting shooey during the F1 Live promotion event in uh, central London. He said, I'm just walking along, minding my business, and they're like, do a shooey. 
I don't actually just take my shoe off when I'm walking in this drink and drink out of it. I feel like I dug a hole for myself with this one. You did. <laughs> he says, on that note, I feel like it's been fun. I want to say it's run its course. We'll see what happens. I don't think he can stop doing it at this point. I just don't. Now, going back to Austria, um, he said uh, he talking about Valtteri because Valtteri ran away. As, when, as when he should. Happened. He said, I heard the Finns drink. I really heard that. But Valtteri did not carry his flag well last Sunday. He said, shame on him. Wow, Valtteri Botas. Disappointed. That's it. No more shoeies. <laughs> now, as for Lewis Hamilton, um, what Lewis had to say was, I still stand firm on that toe jam stuff. The juice from the foot is not something I wish to drink, especially someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I cringe every time I see him do it. It grosses me out. I, I would never be in the fan group that would be calling for it because it gross. <laughs> I'm, I, I hold with Lewis on this one. The, the, the juice from the foot is not something you wish to drink? I'm <laughs> not drinking anybody's foot juice. <laughs> no. Um, and on that note, I think we have to... Well, a, again, a reminder that... Um, there will not be a regularly scheduled show next week. However, what we are going to try to do, um, and you'll need to keep an eye. It's it's some of it will depend on coverage and and what we can get away with. Uh, but keep an eye on our various social media feeds, and we'll try and link what we can to the page. But it's going to depend on coverage, uh, whether that's uh, my Facebook, the Bloke and the Bird Facebook, um, your Facebook. Uh, the Bloke and the Bird Twitter and my Twitter, we will see what we can do. Uh, my goal is, if I can figure out how to pull it off, uh, to do some live uh, video from Pit Lane at Mid-Ohio, if I can get a good signal and I can figure out how to get it onto, the, onto our page. Yes. Otherwise, it'll be on my feed and maybe yours. All right. Well, watch and see what we can find out from the Mid-Ohio track next week. And we will be returning in early August to celebrate the summer break. And now you can call it a show. It's a show. I really fear that they have misjudged the whole competitiveness of Formula One in its current guise. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.